the Santa Barbara News Press radio station. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Chrysell and Diane Duvernay, your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, repeated at 11 and Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara, at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets, and in Montecito's Upper Village. At Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. How are you today? On this I'm good. Thanksgiving, are you getting all ready? I'm getting all ready. It's a, it, for me, it's a lot of work. I have to find people to come to my house. It's a lonely, it's a lonely existence. Well, you know, you gotta, you gotta find someone to watch, you know, the Macy's day parade with you. Maybe if today's show goes well, our guests will join me. Maybe who knows? (laughs) No promises. Would you like to introduce our guest? You should Neil. Um, well, our guest is, is uh, we're very lucky to have uh, uh, Craig Sharmit with us today, who is a, uh, uh, a uh, composer of uh, movie uh, and TV show music. Um, he's also a, a performer and um, a, uh, a football fan for a very bad team. Uh but you also left out what else he is, is he is an author with his mom for my, one of my children's best, fa- or I should say favorite books, the Nate the Great series, which is, is super cool. We enjoy reading them. So Craig, thank you so much for being here with us today. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So as we do every week, we begin with articles uh, in the news. And the first article, we've talked a lot over the last couple of years about the problem that pension funds have, uh, given the fact that a lot of the actuarial assumptions made over the last 30 years were incorrect. And so in terms of uh, paying out over the next 20 years, uh, a lot of these uh, pension funds are going to have difficulty. Uh, And as a result, pension funds have been increasing the amount of risk that they're taking. Well, this article that was out today in the Wall Street Journal has a slightly different element that I hadn't realized, and it's entitled, Cash Allocations Have Dropped to a Seven-Year Low with Pensions Seeking Greater Returns in Private Markets. So we've talked about the fact that pension funds have invested heavily in uh, private equity, in real estate, and other non-liquid assets, but I hadn't realized how significant it is. And right now, uh, the average um, uh, major pension fund is projecting to have 0.8% of their 0.8% of their holdings in cash. And what that means, <laughs> unlike you know 20 years ago, where uh, there was a, uh, a portfolio that included cash and, and government bonds uh, that could be easily sold, uh, pension funds, if there is a, uh, a, a need to raise cash quickly to pay their uh, liabilities, it's going, it may be very difficult. 
Um, and um, in the past, they were able to count on their bond portfolio that was obviously government bonds were very liquid. But what has happened is over the last two decades, their fixed income portfolio shrank to 24% from 33%. And as a result, you've got uh, the real risk that uh, liquidity could be a problem if we have a financial crisis. And uh, the final sentence of this is sort of telling. It says, a strategy that can accomplish what bonds once did, providing yield in good times and accessibility of cash in bad times, is not a problem with an easy solution. Yeah, what's interesting about that is, you know, if you if you constantly uh, shave from the bond component to pay for for, you know, redemptions, what you end up doing is never, you know, it sounds like they never reinvested back into the bond market, which with yields as low as they are right now, you know, when you're looking at one and a half and that that's on the high side of this year, it's it's hard to want to reinvest. I keep saying the state of California should use our budget surplus, which will be the second year in a row to help fund these unfunded pension liabilities. Well, you know, that's a good point. But at the same time, the other problem is that these pension funds, um, could have invested in, uh, instead of bonds, they could have invested in common stocks that are liquid as opposed to private equity. And, and, and that's really, really I think, one of the, uh, the, 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 the problems. And it goes right back into, into the second article I was in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago, and it's uh, entitled CalPERS, which we know is the, one of the largest, not the largest uh, uh, employee. Uh, you want to uh, know that CalPERS makes up 1% of our overall GDP as the U.S. Wow. Well, the headline is CalPERS to borrow and add risk to meet its targets. And so what they've decided to do is add leverage, which, you know, 30 years ago would be unheard of. In fact, I don't even know if it's uh, acceptable by ERISA, but uh, they're going to now leverage their portfolio in order to increase their returns. So, you know, not only are they becoming a liquid uh, versus what they were before, but they're taking on not only risk from the private equity investment portion, but they're actually going to borrow, um, which is, uh, I think, you know, questionable. You know, I, what I go back to as a financial professional is where is their investment policy statement? And I have a hard time believing that leverage is a part of it. You know, investment policy statements are the, the document that governs any of these large institutional, whether it be the endowment for your local nonprofit or whether it be something as large as CalPERS. And clearly the trustees or the, the managers that are responsible for making sure that the funds are invested in a way that adheres to that document is really, they are failing at their job. Well, I, I, can answer, I can answer that question because the fourth paragraph of this article says, board members just approved borrowing and investing an amount equal equivalent to 5% of the fund's value uh, or $25 billion in an effort to hit their 6.8% target return. So it wasn't in their investment statement. They just approved it, which I guess is what triggered this article. Um, the next article is about, um, in, a, in a way, it's about Evergrande, the uh, disaster investment in real estate uh, by the largest Chinese uh, investment real estate investment company. And um, what's interesting about this article is not that you know they've overbuilt and we've talked about Evergreen's issues and why they're in trouble, but the article talks about 
because China is not as opaque by any measure <laughs> and quite malleable in practice about rules and regulations, uh, on the one hand, uh, they could be saved by, uh, and this is really sort of interesting, that the article says that in some cases, the Chinese will put pressure on uh, owners of companies to divvy up money from the principals to make good on certain uh, uh, uh deficits. And the, the reason I bring this up is not so much because I, I care about Evergrande, although contagion is a possibility, but the fact that um, whenever you invest in China or any of these countries that don't have the same clarity as to regulations that we do, you're almost buying a black box because anything can happen. You know, Whatever problems the SEC has, we have an SEC that has rules and regulations and, and China doesn't. So when people you know, sort of equate whether they should invest in foreign companies versus American companies strictly based on relative values, they ought to consider uh, the risk of government intervention that is not always positive. For sure. And that said, however, I, I do think it's important to also diversify geographically and do have some exposure to to international companies aside from just the U.S. And the next article, I guess, shouldn't surprise me, but it did. Uh, debt fuel payouts jump at uh, buyout shops, and uh, you know this is sort of, in a way, slightly related to the whole Calpers and pension fund issue. Uh, private equity firms have almost all their investments in uh, private equity, which is illiquid. So in order to pay dividends um, on uh, their investments, sometimes it's difficult because until they sell the company or until the companies that they own starts throwing cash flow off, they really don't have the cash to do it. So what they're doing is they're borrowing and they're using the debt to pay dividends to their own shareholders, which again is another you know, symptom of what we're seeing now in, in the marketplace. Well, I think it's a symptom of all the stimulus money. You know, when you have $8 trillion slopping around our economy right now, you have a lot of a lot of ways to get money and interest rates are very attractive. And so it's oftentimes better for these companies when interest rates are as low as they are to borrow and pay the dividend as opposed to sell something and, and pay the dividend. Exactly. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Eddie Tadouri. I'm the founder of the Rhythmic Arts Project, or TRAP as it's better known. I wanted to tell you a little bit about the work we've been doing during this time of Corona. Our virtual classes have been reaching out and inspiring students around the world, as well as right here at home. Our primary objective is to promote the inclusion of people with different abilities, as well as their typical peers in all aspects of everyday life. Like everyone struggling to make ends meet in our nonprofit world, we depend on donations from folks like you. Please review the website at traplearning.org and give what you can. I'm very grateful. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. 
That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending. Since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or feel free to email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. And if you're just joining us, you're in for a real treat. We have today with us a multi-award winning composer, a billboard chart-topping jazz artist, and his name is Craig Charmant. He also has written with his mother one of my children's favorite books, the Nate the Great series. So, Craig, thanks so much for being with, with us here today. Thanks for me to be here. So, where did you grow up, and how did you make it make your way out to Santa Barbara? Um, <laughs> that's a long story and maybe not all that interesting, but I grew up in New York, went to college, uh, in Syracuse for a while and transferred to Arizona. Hold uh, on. I stop you right there because notice Neil, he's from New York too, but you can, you can barely tell with his speaking. Yeah, but he did, he came from a place that's, that's less sophisticated than Santa Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Syracuse, come on. Syracuse was college. Uh, my- <laughs> We're not native New Yorkers, so I while I do have a bit of an accent, it's it's not as uh, thick as some. <laughs> Fair enough. So I'm sorry to interrupt. So so you grew up you grew up in New York and you went to Syracuse and then you transferred out to Arizona. Yes. And what made you um, want to explore Arizona? Well, what basically happened was my my folks had moved from uh, from Westchester, New York, to Arizona. And I was still in college in Syracuse, and they were, I think they were hoping I wouldn't find them, but uh, I went out for a vacation one, one year, and it, you know, it was, Syracuse is cold. And I'm an avid tennis player, I was an avid tennis player back then, and I went, wow, it's 70 degrees here, it's December, I'm transferring. This is, <laughs> I don't have any reason to be in Syracuse. I didn't think my professor was as good as I wanted him to be, and I liked who the professor was in Arizona, so I made a transfer. And tell us, so you you actually graduated from uh, from the music department in Arizona, is that correct? You're not correct. I got through my, I had very good grades, but I got through my uh, middle of my junior year and there was a new school opening up in, in Los Angeles called the Guitar Institute of Technology. And um, needless to say, they probably got sued for having that name because it was too much like MIT. They eventually changed it to MIT and then because it became the Musical Institute of Technology. And it was a one-year crash course. Basically, you had one week off for the entire like year and you went year-round and you played guitar 12 hours a day. And there, I needed that because 
I was behind when I was going to college. I wasn't the kind of the person who would normally get picked to go to music school. And I realized I had to make up the, the time by playing all the time. And this school afforded me that opportunity. And I took full advantage. So how, when did you realize that you wanted to pursue that as a profession or that you were even musically talented? There were two things which happened. I wanted to be a linebacker. Uh, I got, uh, I was playing uh, football at age 13 and a guy about twice my size rang my bell when I was trying to tackle somebody. He, he, he gave me a block and I was going like, oh, maybe I should try to do something else. So <laughs> football was gone at that point. Um, and then I remember there was this guy named John Davis who turned out to be a fantastic, uh, was a fantastic guitar player uh, in you know, we were like 13 or 14 and he was playing all these great Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young songs at, at camp. And I went, oh, I really want to be able to do that. And he had all the girls and uh, and I said, OK, next year I'm going to come back and I'm going to know how to do this. So I got into the guitar. I started copying. I did. I could play like what he did the year before I came back. I didn't get any of the girls, but I could play guitar at that point. I just realized I love this. John Davis eventually ended up becoming uh, Jacob Pistorius' keyboard player oddly enough, and we've stayed in touch over the years. Cool. Thanks for Facebook. And so currently you are still a, you know, a gigging musician, meaning that you still play jazz around town for, so what types of gigs do you do? I found um, this, this music, it was kind of by accident called Gypsy Jazz, uh, which was a, it was based by, it was originally created by a guy named Django Reinhardt. Some people may know and some people may not. Uh, most people, when they think of Django, they probably think of the movie Django Unchained. This is not that. Django Reinhardt was a gypsy Romani uh, guitar player who played in the French swing style back in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s before he passed. And um, it's without drums usually. Sometimes there's drums. But it's uh, a style I suddenly realized, hey, this is a lot of fun. I don't want to get a drummer in my left ear, which makes me deaf. I, I need to mix for my uh, for my main income. And uh, yeah, and we just played at the University Club here in Santa Barbara uh, on Wednesday. Nice. So if anybody wants to come hear you, do you have any upcoming gigs coming up? Any bookings? Uh, well, we play the, um, I'm trying to think if we have, we're going to, a few of us are going to gather at La Cumbra on uh, the 27th for a little holiday playing in the afternoon. Uh, it's going to be called Jangle Bells. That's not the name of our band, but they're calling it that because it's like Jingle Bells. So it's Jangle Bells. So we named the band for that, uh, for that uh, occasion. Um, we are right now reforming uh, the band. So we do not have any concerts which we can go to at this time, but we have the private events where we're playing. And what is the name of your band? Well, I'm in two. There's one, which was the original was called Idiomatique, Idiomatique. And the other one now is called Django Cats. So it's splintered off into two bands and I happen to be in both of them. So now when you talk about um, joining and, and splitting in bands, what does that look like? Is it is it like as um, dramatic as, say, when when the Beatles break up or something like that? Or is it more fluid as, as you get older? Um, well, unfortunately, this one is COVID related. One person didn't want to get vaxxed and some people didn't want to play with a person who didn't want to get vaxxed. And so they formed to they kind of split off and then found other people to play. So it's it's not dramatic. That is dramatic, but it's that is dramatic, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was definitely some bad blood because of the because of the of the COVID thing. Uh, and it's unfortunate because I like everybody involved. It's just, you know, you have your viewpoints whether you need a vaccine or not. Um, I'm vaccinated, just, you know, but I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't banish the player who was not vaccinated. Let's put it that way. 
So now for, for your work in your, um, your um, composing for television and, and, um, and movies, how does that work? And, and do you work alone? Do you work with others? Do you mix? Explain to us that process and, and how you do the creativity and product, productivity of the work. Uh, my work has evolved, and maybe not in a necessarily a good way over the years, but it just evolved to what it is. When I was first doing um, TV work, I was scoring uh, songs for a show called Kids Incorporated for Disney. From there, I ended up starting to score for movies and for animation, for like um, shows like Men in Black and Godzilla. And um, but that was scoring the picture. They would send me the actual. Uh, picture with all the audio, maybe not some of the sound effects, but everything else. And then I would put the music right to the picture. And that was the way I worked. Uh, then I started working on a show called America's Most Wanted. And this is when everything started to change. So I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with America's Most Wanted. Um, yes, yes, I am. So if you're familiar with it, what would happen is they would have bad guys and slime balls, as he would call them in and a thing occurred, which was called the Friday, uh, Friday Capture, which was unique to the show because it was supposed to be a news, a news show. It needed to be current. And um, what would happen is the show would air on Saturday. And on Friday, um, the last thing these guys would do after murdering or raping or whatever bad thing they would done, have done, they would be captured on the Friday, throwing the television show into chaos because... We're trying to cast this guy, but he's really in jail already. So it, it basically screw up. So they called it the Friday Capture. So the America's Most Wanted people suddenly asked me, would you start to create a thing called a library? And a library would be something where they didn't have to pay for the scoring of the entire reenactment of the crime stuff. Um, you, would just, you would just have pieces they could edit and put onto their show as opposed to scoring the picture. It's not as good from an artistic standpoint, but hey, they're catching criminals. They don't really care about the artistic uh, of, the, of the TV show at, at this point. So now I am creating these minute pieces, minute and a half pieces for this TV show. No idea what is, where, where they're gonna put it, but they said, um, we can't pay you any money up front. I'm going, okay, that's not good. They said, but if we, air, if we use it, we'll give you what is called a needle drop which would be 25 or $50 every time we drop it. And you get to keep, this is the big one, it's primetime show on Fox. You get to keep not only your writers, but you get to keep your publishing. So there's, there are two income streams which happen, which is probably now related to your show. Um, I am now a CSAC, but at the time I was with BMI. So the two income streams you would get off a of TV on a primetime show is your writer's which would, might be somewhere around $150 at that time uh, for every minute that was played. And you would also get to keep your publishing. So now if, a, if your music airs um, for that show for one minute, you have $300 in your pocket. If it airs four minutes, well, you got $1,200 in your pocket. And if the show airs again, it all doubles up. It's on prime time. So now there's an income stream happening while you're not working. So you actually get paid for reruns then as well. You would, and most shows do, but now America's Most Wanted had very few reruns because it's a live, it's a news show. So it's like you you don't get news reruns too often. Um, maybe here you get them on Sundays or Saturdays. 
um, in, in Santa Barbara, but there you didn't get too many, but they did spawn off other little shows where they would take segments and you could get paid again. So um, at that point, though, what also happened is since I owned the publishing, I was starting to assemble a library. So by the time I was on with America's Most Wanted, when they went off the air 14 years later, I had assembled close to 2,000 cues, 2,000 pieces of music, which were perfect for crime. And at that point, they had another crime. They had a, a company called Sirens. Uh, some some uh, woman had decided to do a company called Sirens, and they dealt with crime reenactments. And oh, that, that's perfect. Right. So they knew that. And, they, and uh, I was the only person who America's Most Wanted said ever came to visit them in Washington, you know, where they were, or Silver Spring, Maryland, as, as it was. No one else would visit. They'd call them on the phone, but no one would, would take the trip. And I like people. You know, I don't know if they like me, but I like them. So I'm going, I'm going to go visit. And um, and these people, I like them. And and I visit them twice. And when they when Sirens had asked, hey, who can we get to be a composer um, for the, for our shows? We, um, you know, we need some, some composer. They immediately said, hey, this guy's proactive. He'll, he'll, he'll do it. And now I'm with um, Discovery and uh, Discovery ID Network because Sirens was putting all the shows with Discovery ID and that was a big, uh, that was a, you know, that was their start basically. Discovery ID was Sirens was throwing all the shows at them. And so, so Diane, I think we need to hire Greg as our agent. I, I don't think we're doing so well with the compensation we get for this radio show. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. The Nature Track Foundation fosters a lifelong fascination with nature by taking school kids on outdoor field trips. Here's Holly Klein. Nature Track takes children out of the schoolroom and they put them onto the trails or beaches with docents who have a love of the outdoors and also expertise in different things in the outdoors. And for half a day, those kids are learning about nature, not just nature, but about conservation and about preservation of what it is that we have. And some of these kids, they never had to try to make their way across a stream. They've never turned over rocks and looked at the worms and the bugs and the things that are underneath it. And this is, by the way, free of cost. It doesn't cost the school anything. It doesn't cost the parents anything, not even transportation. NatureTrack takes care of everything. To learn more about the NatureTrack Foundation, to volunteer, or to make a donation, go to NatureTrack.org. That's NatureTrack.org. Or call 805-866-2047. 
Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So, Craig, on the break, we were talking about how the industry has changed over, over the years. Now, when did you make the move from, I'm assuming you were in LA at some point, and you moved up to Santa Barbara? Is that true? That is correct. And so what enabled you to be able to make that move out of the epicenter of, you know, all entertainment up to Santa Barbara, up to sleepy Santa Barbara, I like to say. Um, What had happened is the internet is what happened. Um, You could at this point deliver all your shows um, uh, virtually. A matter of fact, you know, and, and you could also talk about TV shows with your whoever you're you're dealing with over the phone and and do what was called a spotting session if you had stuff you had to score a spotting session is you all look at the picture and say hey i need you to have this kind of music at this time i need sad music here i need i need this is a chase scene you really got to play this up so you could do this all remotely and you could also send all your files over to the edit bays of these uh tv shows where they would uh be able to edit your music and put it in and you didn't have to be in LA anymore. And, and this is sort of like film editing. Also, you didn't need a hundred thousand dollar gigantic editing machine. You have the technology now that's been miniaturized, I would assume. And it's affordable to put in your home office. Yeah. I, well, I've been, I've been working out of my home home basically since, since computers were there. I've had the very first computers. I had Atari's, I had the early Macs. Um, so I've been working at it at home and it was really handy because again, well, a lot of my clients were on the East coast and the last thing, you know, I want to work when they're working. So they get the office at nine, I'm up at six, six thirty or something. I'm kind of working their time, timetables. And it's really handy that, um, that, uh, I have a studio in my house instead of having to go someplace. And who's the competition? Who do you compete with? These days I compete against very large libraries like Sony I mean, they don't even know I exist um, unless they're trying to take over a TV show and they say, oh, who's, who's your music guy? Oh, we can do better than that. We can give you 10 music guys and we'll make this deal. So that is my competition at this point. I'm, I'm starting to slow down with my work. Uh, I'm fine with it. I, I, I got in when, when, when things were, were pretty good. I also work for a big war- library company called Warner Chapel, which was a one time owned by Warner. Um, they're one of the biggest publishing companies in the world. And I've worked for them for 15, 20 years on the side. They've been great to me. I really love those guys. And, and so what do you, in terms of your creativity, what's your favorite? Is it to score? Is it the way you used to work where they'd send you the movie and then you'd score the movie and send it back to them? Or do you like that more of that collaborative piece? Well, to, basically when I, when I would score a picture, that was the collaborative thing. What I'm doing now when I'm making a library is far less collaborative. I just kind of send the cues. They say, hey, we kind of like this vibe or we don't like the vibe. Can you change this? So um, I like the collaborative thing where I'm scoring a picture. Uh, But often it was dealt with with a very tight deadline. I used to like that because I knew the job was going to end because it had to end because the show was going to air. Uh, On the other hand, I also like being able to work very loosely on these library cues and and there's no pressure. There's no time pressure as, as, as I get older. So and, and how do how do you get work? Is is it from reputation? Do you have an agent? What is the process for for getting a, a business? I love my agent. He does. He's never got me a job though. Uh, he's been good for contracts. 
but basically, uh, I've it's always been word of mouth. Somebody knows, hey, he does really good work. You can count on him. Um, it, it's been it's almost all been word of mouth, and I get passed. I get passed to this people. I get passed to these people. I get passed to these people, and that's that's basically how I've worked. Hey, do you ever recycle uh, music? Uh, can you use something that you own that you used ten years ago? because it's appropriate on a new assignment? Absolutely. If I own it, it's free to be used. I say, matter of fact, please use it. <laughs> this music was, was written. I have no um, ego attached to it. Its job is just to, at this point, make, earn an income. And it's, yeah, it's crime. Majority of it is crime music. And how, is it hard for you when some of your music is owned by a third party? to not recycle it because I I've got to imagine working on such tight deadlines as you did when you see something that's good for, you know, that you've written in the past, isn't it? How, how do you deal with that? Uh, um, I'm sorry. I want to just turn this thing off. I don't know what happened. Uh, um, so I'm sorry. Ask the question again. So when you're, when you're working on tight deadlines, is it hard not to recycle music that might be owned by a third party at this point? Like, how do you, how do you um, I guess, ensure that you don't do that because it's still your own creativity that's at, at play here? I always try to do something fresh. I always try to look for another way to um, reduce, you know, hey, I've written 200 chase scenes, but I always want to try to find a new way. Yeah, I'm going to try this different percussion kind of groove instead for this thing, or I'm going to try these different sounds. Um, I want to be inspired each time I write. So and, I try not to recycle. And, and, when you go, and when you say you have percussion sounds, is, is that um, are those sound bites something that you have to pay for? Oh. Uh, how do you get them? I program them. There, uh, there would be, let's say, or I can use a pre- if no, there might be a, a loop of a, of a shaker going, sh 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 and I can use that, I can speed it up. But generally, I will program the drums or I'll program, you know, the strings. Let's say I have, you can even hear something. I'm not a piano player, but, you know, you'd have a groove. So you just program it, and that would be, let's say, your chasing going for. So the so so the instrument is comp is computer generated. They're not they're not instruments. They are not instruments, but like I have string sounds, samples of string sounds. So you can hear right now. I'm going to play. Um, it's going to sound like real strings. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yes. So I'm playing it, and one thing I got very good at uh, over the years is being able to make up fake orchestras where you can't tell the difference between if it's real or if it's fake. So if you came over to my place, you would hear a real orchestra and I'm just playing it on, on with my hands. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kelly Clarkson and I've toured the country dozens of times and there's one thing every state has in common childhood hunger. The sad truth is that 17 million kids don't know where their next meal is coming from or if it's even coming at all. Yet there are billions of pounds of surplus food around the country at farms and warehouses that could help end this injustice. But all that food is useless if it doesn't get where it needs to go. That's why the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks gathers surplus food and gets it to hungry kids before it goes to waste. But they can't do it without your help. 
Join me in supporting Feeding America and your local food bank. Find out how at feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together we're Feeding America. To help solve hunger in your community and to find your local food bank, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Are you ready to start and run your own successful business? Ready to grow your small business or home business? Women's Economic Ventures is a local nonprofit helping women start and build successful businesses. In addition to their highly successful self-employment training program, Weave offers services to help women succeed at every stage of their business, from startup and launch to building and sustaining a business, including individual business counseling, professional networking events, advanced business training, and small business loans to start or expand a business. Over 1,000 local businesses are now owned and operated by women who have taken part in programs and services. Whether you're ready to start up, launch, build, or sustain your business, Women's Economic Ventures is right here to help you make it happen. Call 965-6073 or visit weaveonline.org. Back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So, Craig, you know, you have conducted major world-class symphonies. Tell us about those experiences and how, how you translate that into your music. Uh, well, I haven't uh, conducted... <laughs> symphonies. Um, I have conducted my own works um, and I've had top studio players play them, but I, I do not conduct symphonies of, of other people's works. That's yeah. Well, I guess to a certain extent, you're the conductor of your own symphony when you create that. I am. On, on your keyboard, right? I am. And also I have translated that and had it written out and had it played by real orchestras. So and, and I have conducted for those, but uh, I'm, I don't consider myself a conductor. Or I would often like to be in the, in the in the booth listening to stuff and have somebody else conduct it. So so a lot of uh, uh, not a lot. I haven't spoken to that many music composers, but um, the, uh, the similarities that they have uh, perfect pitch and they can tell things that the the human ear usually can't. Were you endowed with sort of a, a, a talent to really hear music in a way that helps you write uh, perfect scoring? No, no, everything <laughs> I have, I have one really good talent and that is I'm tenacious. Uh, I went, you know, if I don't understand or if I'm hearing something and I can't, and I don't know what it is, I'm going to figure out what it is. And uh, I do not have perfect pitch. It's called relative. I started to develop perfect pitch where, where I could hear what notes were at, at a certain point. And then I just went, what am I doing? I don't need this. Um, and it's something, and it's certainly nothing that I was endowed with, but I, I was endowed with a, with a very strong work ethic. So I've outworked a lot of people. You know, for someone that has no idea how to write music, I would imagine it must be thrilling to turn on the TV or go to a movie theater and all of a sudden see your work on a screen or hear your work on a screen along with uh, some creative uh, 
film or TV show. Do you get a, a, a real charge out of that still, or did you ever? I did when I first started, when I first saw my first, I remember going to a film festival and, and seeing my, and listening to my score in the movie. And I was going like, wow, this came out a lot better than I thought it was going to come out. And I was, I was very pleased. I remember hearing my first jazz stuff on radio back kind of before when I was still just a lounge player in Las Vegas. And that was very nice to hear you hear the stuff on the radio. And so, yeah, I always enjoy I'm, even now, if I get a song played on the radio and I see it up on the screen, let's say if I'm listening to music choice or something and I hear see my when my songs come up on the uh, on the screen, it's, it's always a good feeling. It's not maybe the, the thrill that it was at one point, but it always it, it, it's kind of like a justification for continuing to write. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, it, many, many of us non-musical people, you know, take the music and films and, and television shows for granted that they're just there. But it's interesting. I've actually been forced to watch one without the music. It is a totally flat experience. The music is actually what makes most of those movies and it makes you feel a certain way. It evokes that emotion that words alone can't do. So it is a real skill and, um, you know, thank you for doing it because you, you make entertainment that much more enjoyable for sure. So given that you are a composer and a performer, which do you prefer and why? It's funny, if I was to spend a month performing straight, I'd be going like, I can't hardly wait to compose again because it's just like you're I'm away from it and I, and I, and I want to get back to it. If I'm composing for like a month and a half and I don't get to play out, that drives me a little bit nuts. So it's almost like I need to have a balance for, for myself to be pretty, pretty whole as far as a musician, I need to perform and I need to need to write and, and not one favors the other. You know, in some businesses you need, people think you need the contact that the random contact of walking down uh, a street in a big city and running into someone who's in the business and talking about ideas. I don't know if that's the case in, in, in a creative area like you are, but do you ever feel that sitting in your in your room without really having contact with other people, it makes the the the, the work more challenging? It certainly makes things more challenging as far as making new contacts and getting new kinds of work. Because in the old, when I was living in LA, that's where you did, you, you networked. Now networking is a little bit tougher. Um, and especially with COVID, I guess. Uh, as far as I, I mean, I certainly enjoy, um, <laughs> there, there were two, there were two things. I, I there, This is kind of a funny analogy, though. Uh, as far as working by myself, um, you, you know, when you're a performer, the thing you want to do when you play, you play your instrument and you, and, and you finish a good show, you want to see, you know, people standing up and you're getting great feedback. And, and there was an old joke of saying that when you send in music for, uh, for a movie or, or for TV, you hope when you send it in that you hear back nothing. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously, if you hear back something, that means, OK, we need to fix this. This isn't right. We need to, you know. And but actually, I, I enjoy the process of saying, oh, I, I wasn't thinking of it that way. Let me try taking your viewpoint on this and and see where we go. And very often I go like, oh, I like I like where you, you know, what you were thinking. Of course, it's your your picture. Of course, I, I like what you were thinking. You know, you have the you, you have that initial vision, but it's um, it's it's nice to work by yourself and do a good job and, and, and not hear anything back. But I also like hearing back. Also. You know, D Diane said something interesting. She said that when she listened, when she watched a film that didn't have music, it, it took away from it. But at the same time, there are 
films that I've seen where the music is really heavy handed and actually uh, is too dramatic. And it sort of uh, ruins the scene because you see through the, you hear through the music, what's going to happen next. So I, I guess there's a balance there. There absolutely is. And overwriting and also giving away the scene. Uh, those, those are two, two huge no-nos. And after, you know, you learn your initial thing when you're a young writer, is you want to hit everything. Fortunately, I was doing cartoons uh, when I was getting my, my, my feet wet. And in those things, you hit everything. You know, a cartoon, you cannot be too subtle. You, if if something somebody's getting banged over the head, you play, you hit that thing. Um, when you start playing drama or um, where where you have real real people, you have to play the scene or the mood, and and you and you stay away from things. You let the you let the scene play out, and, and you underscore it so it, it's subtle, and people hopefully are not even really hearing the music. It's just a, a subliminal thing. So how do you how do you manage your day? So you, you're sitting there with a lot of, I imagine, creativity, but also tension. Do, do you work for an hour or two and then wander the streets? Or do you, I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you as, a, as, as someone living in Santa Barbara, working in a high powered business, but yet working out of their home, how do you manage that emotionally? Uh, well, I've always been sort of an exercise freak. So I work out five, six days a week. Either uh, I used to mountain bike six days a week. I, since I came out here, I haven't mountain biked as much, but I've been running. Uh, I play tennis. Uh, I hike, and so that kind of gets me out of here. Then when way when I come back into the room, I'm fresh. Also, being a guitar player allows me to get away from the composing thing. And then if I need to get away from the composing, you know, from the guitar playing thing, I can compose. And so. Between all of that, and also I'm married, so that's the other side. Is you know do things with your wife, and uh, that's that's usually enough diversion to keep me fresh. Who's your so now, Who's your favorite musician? That's a big question. In what In what field? Well, like if If once we get off the air, who would you like to turn on to relax? Other than, uh, other than your own stuff. Other than my own stuff, <laughs> I, I probably won't listen to music if I've been doing music all day. Um, but if who I like to listen to, I mean, as for for jazz, I will listen to gypsy jazz because I'm into it these days. I'll listen to Django Reinhardt. I'll listen to Gonzalo Baguera. Um, I'll listen to my old influence were Larry Carlton, George Benson, um, as a guitar player, um, uh, Robin Ford. And then as a composer, John Williams, of course, because he, you know, he's so iconic and he kind of recreated the genre. So I'll listen to him. Um, I like listening to some old stuff like Steiner. Uh, I'll listen to classical stuff. I'll listen to Stravinsky. Uh, I'll listen to Debussy. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a ton of classical composers I'll listen to. Carl Copeland was a huge influence. I was listening to him at age five. I grew up listening to Billy the Kid. So Copeland has always been an, uh, a big influence for me. That's some of the stuff I listen to. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 KZSB, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Today in school, I learned a lot. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes me. In English, I learned that I'm disgusting. And in physics, I learned that I'm a loser. Today in school, I learned that I'm ugly and useless. And in gym, I learned that I'm pathetic and a joke. In history, I learned that I'm trapped. Today in school, I learned that I have no friends. 
In English, I learned that I make people sick. And at lunch, I learned that I sit on my own because I smell. In chemistry, I learned that no one likes In biology, me. I learned that I'm fat and stupid. And in math, I learned that I'm trash. The only thing I didn't learn in school today... The only thing I didn't learn today... The only thing I didn't learn... Is why no one ever helps. Kids witness bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. Teach them how to stop bullying and be more than a bystander at stopbullying.gov. A message from the Ad Council. The United Nations Association, Santa Barbara Chapter, is dedicated to building understanding of and support for the work of the UN. Here's Barbara Gon Mueller. United Nations Association is the local arm of the global UN, UNASB.org. We started after the UN was created in 1945. Where would we be without that global voice, that global arm that allows countries to talk? If you join the UNA, you will get a feed from us every single day about what is going on. Anything we do, you get to be invited to. What I have found makes a good member of the UNA is somebody who really wants to do something on the local level. And then there's a lot of people who use the United Nations Association as a vehicle to get involved and become part of the solution. To learn more about the United Nations Association and to become a member, go to unasb.org. That's unasb.org. Or call 805-680-9445. Money Talk brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So, Craig, when you're composing, are how how much how many times do you scrap it and start again? And do you use your own guitar playing sometimes in in your composing, or is it all synthesized? Uh, the answer is, um, I do use my own guitar playing in my, I mean, sometimes it's all, and they say synthesize. They're, most of it is, they're synthesizers and they're what is called samples. And a sample is like, you'll have a sample of an or, of an orchestra playing a, a C note. So that say would be a C note here. And so here's octaves. So those are samples as opposed to synthesize. So I want to say people always think it's a synthesizer when you're doing this, but there's no synthesis synthesizing. And how do you get how do you get those? Do you have to pay for them each time or you just pay for it once? You pay for a library. Um, I do a lot of demos for the library company. So very often I'll get them for free. I used to do custom libraries for myself and a few others. um, And that's how I kind of when we were we were beta testers for some of these companies we went hey we could do better let's go and sample our own our own stuff so i would go to prague with these guys and we would sample our own and uh we pay the orchestra and then we tell them here's what we want you to play and we'd come back and then we would have we'd have what we needed and then uh, there's all these companies now which came out and a lot of them will have me do uh, demos for them and then they'll hand me the library or I'll just go, I don't want to do the demo. It's a pain in the ass. I'll just buy the library or I've had enough of these libraries. I don't need any more. So when you're composing, how often do you bring somebody else in and say, hey, when you listen to this, what emotion does that evoke in you? Or how, or do you go off just your own feeling of the music itself? I go off like my own feeling. I've done this for so long. Yeah. 
I, I know what's going to work, what's not going to work. The only time I bring people in is say, hey, I need a sax player for this. Uh, we have a sexy scene happening here and I need some sexy sax. And I'll call up somebody. I have samples of sax and it's unless I need cheesy. If I need cheesy, I'll use a sample. But if I want it to sound pretty, pretty good, I need to bring in a real guy. And that'll be that'll be done remotely usually also. I'll just contact my buddy and, and I'll say, here's the track, put some sax here, send it back to me. It says if you took that question right out of my mouth, I was going to ask you, do you, uh, do you travel and collaborate? But it's all done remotely. So you have your contacts and you just call them up and say, hey, I need I need a sample from you. And and how does it work in terms of that business arrangement? Do you pay them outright for that or? Yes, I pay them outright and they know it's going to happen. They'll never talk. We'll never talk about it again, but they'll get another they'll get another job from me at some point. That being said, I'm working on a project uh, right now, an album for a guy named Peter Madlam. It's coming out good and we hired a string quartet and drove to L.A. and uh, recorded it there live. So there was no there was no com well, there was computers because you record it on, on a computer these days. But uh, it, there's still some live stuff that, that I that I get to do on occasion. Excellent. I wonder. I wonder, uh, Diane, if we should uh, ask Greg to re to write our theme music. You know, we use the Beach Boys. Uh, uh, no, we don't. We use uh, who? Who do we use? Uh, who, what's our theme? Straits. Dire Straits uh, is our is our theme. But maybe we need. You know, Greg. Did you pay for it? Shh. Don't say. Don't 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 say anything. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we, we only use like two lines. I think that's okay. Um, anyway, thank you so much, Craig. Uh, thank you for doing something that neither Diane and I have any capability of doing. Uh, and uh, it's great to see someone doing what you do in Santa Barbara. Uh, so thank you. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.